The pandemic has kept many of us apart and away from our loved ones. Yeah, literally, but also ideologically. Yeah, it seems like we've grown apart as a country, too far apart, and we feel like it's time to talk about it. It's why today we're sitting down with Emmanuel Acho, former NFL linebacker, fellow pastor's kid, and host of Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. Which is a conversation series where Emmanuel has, yep, you guessed it, uncomfortable conversations with guests from actor Matthew McConaughey to officers in the Petaluma Police Department. And of course, his goal is to educate and inform white America about racism, systemic racism, social injustice, and so much more. And I love his countenance. He does this with so much love because ultimately his goal is to bring people closer together. Which we so desperately need, of course, now more than ever. So it's time to have some uncomfortable conversations. And come out better for it. So happy Monday. This is In Good Faith. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited about this episode of In Good Faith. We have gathered in a room and we are about to have a conversation with, I know I'm given to exaggeration. Yes, you are. I can see the eyes of my wife (laughs) bearing down on me. One of the men I admire most. I will agree with Um, that. Not exaggerated. And that is none other than Emmanuel Acho. Listen, your bio is sitting in front of me and it's so long. It's actually, it's overwhelming. So tell us what Um, you really think about bios since they're sitting in front of us. I hate bios. I abhor bios. (laughs) (laughs) So what's your favorite two things on your bio since we're not going to read the lengthiness of it? And then I'll say my two favorite things in his bio. My two favorite things, Forbes under 30 list. We made that. The Forbes 30 under 30 list. And uh, won an Emmy. And that was maybe as of two months ago in September, three months ago. So those are the only things I don't even really care about. But of all the things I don't care about, I care about those. (laughs) Those, That's such a good way of saying it. By the way, when you won the Emmy, I got emotional. Now, I do get emotional about a lot of things, but it meant a lot to me. And what you have done with uncomfortable conversations with a black man, um, can I just say thank you from the bottom of my heart on behalf of my generation and the next generation and the next generation Thank you. I love you. I respect you. And it will be one of many, many Emmys. I can guarantee you that. First of all, uh, my two favorite parts of your bio, you play the piano and you sing and both are your first love. So Mm -hmm. being a pastor's kid, um, you grew up in church. I know your pastor. I know your pastor's sons and family. (laughs) Tell us your favorite church song. Ever. Bro, it's hard to name five. Right? I mean, narrow it down to three, but we're talking Um, one. If I had to pick one, and I think because of the melody and the message and everything, I'm going to test some people. I'm going to test people here. Let's do it. Let's do it. (laughs) Days of Elijah. These are the days of Elijah. Yes. Wow, that's deep. (laughs) Because Days of Elijah, it reminds you of like biblical stories. 
Yeah. Like, so it, it reminds you of the text, but then also, like, it kind of jams when they get to, like, the... Yo, I can't remember the melody. Comes, oh, that's it. Riding on a cold. It's kind of hype. It's kind of hype. Like, Days of Elijah is, if, is, if I had to pick one, because it takes you through a lot. It's a little bit of a vibe. It's a little bit of, like, a, a theological exegeting of, like, scripture. Right. Yeah. Um, it's all those things. I can't wait to go play it when we're done with this conversation. Donnie McClurkin's so version, jam. Okay, my favorite part. You're going to be embarrassed that I'm admitting this. Okay. The Bachelor episode that you hosted. Jay, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish you could see Emmanuel's Did face right it? now. He's like, are you kidding Okay, me? true confessions. I've never watched The Bachelor. I've never been a fan. Give me mm-hmm. a, a show where people are dying and killing each other, and I'm down with that. But reality TV isn't normally my favorite. But the start of 2021 was a bit of a dark year. My kids were still in online school, and Mondays were just the worst. Yeah. So I had to give myself something to be excited about on Mondays. And that was The Bachelor. So that's the one lone season of The Bachelor that I did watch. So and our first season was together. It was together. Look at look at that. Special. That's look at special. That. Hey, you did a great job, by the way. You do a great job at everything it you do. It was the most nerve-wracking thing I've ever had to do on Is television. Is that right? Stop. A true story. Why? Why would you say if, that? If that was a 10 of difficulty, anything else I've ever done is at most a six. One, I don't watch the show either. So I had to crash course on four days notice prep for all this. So I had to go rewatch all the episodes, learn all the love stories, like inundate myself in everything. That was the first issue. Second problem, I'm not emotional. But this is an incredibly emotional time. You know that you, maybe we could cry before this episode's over. Good luck. Um, <laughs> so prepping for The Bachelor, the first problem is you have to walk on to center stage from off stage. You have to instantly start reading from a teleprompter directly in front of you. 15 seconds into that teleprompter read, you have to pivot left and read from another prompter, but do not break sentence. After you finish the prompter read, you have to open pivot to introduce your first guests onto stage. Guests walk onto stage. If they go in for a hug, you hug them. Handshake, you handshake. Nothing, they sit, you sit. Here's where it gets tricky. After sitting, you realize about two minutes in, hey, Acho, you have to toss. What that means is you have to lead the person you're talking to to a packaged episode they haven't seen yet. So you have to toss to a piece that the person you're talking to, whether it was Matt James, the first Black Bachelor, or Rachel Kirkconnell, the woman he chose, or Michelle or Brie, any of them toss to this package. But here's the trick. They haven't seen the package, and it's supposed to move them to tears. If they cry, say nothing. If they don't cry, say three words that gets them to feel. What are you feeling in this moment? Oh, stop. Like, that's the direction. Your goal is to get them to cry. Yes. You're trying to break them. <laughs> okay, first off, <laughs> calm down. Calm down, Judah. Um, I'm trying to evoke emotion. And so this is what made it. So truly difficult, me not being emotional. There came a period where I asked an individual a question and it was live to tape. This was not live. I asked an individual a question. They didn't respond. True story for six minutes and 19 seconds. We timed it. The first 30 seconds, the producer was like, don't save them. So I said nothing. Is this person crying or just, no, sta- just staring just at staring, you? Just staring. First 30 seconds, producers in my ear, don't save them. 30 seconds later, it's now been a minute. Don't save them. Don't save a meaning, hey, don't ask anything else. Just let the awkwardness, let the silence breathe. Okay. A minute and 30 in, the producer's in my ear, this is getting awkward. 
two minutes in, it's now so awkward that to me it's comical. Why is it comical? I don't watch the show. So I'm sitting here like, what the heck am I, Emmanuel Acho, doing, hosting The Bachelor, watching this love unfold? So true story, so unfortunate. I closed my eyes and had to think about my father in the hospital to get sad again because I was about to start laughing because I started thinking about myself in this situation like, bruh, I'm really hosting a bachelor asking this person a question and they ain't spoke for two minutes. This was comical to me. Two minutes. So I paused Chelsea True Story and I'm like, what the heck is going on? Sad thoughts, sad thoughts, sad thoughts, somber face, come back to, so how do you feel right now? Um, Anyway, yo, it was wild. Six minutes and 19 seconds. Six minutes, 19 seconds. It's got to be a record. Are you going on record to say, is it going to be the most wild thing you probably ever are a part of? Like, is it that outrageous? That's a great, great, great question. It might be the most challenging thing Mm. I'll ever have to do. Not most outrageous, right? Like, sitting down with McConaughey to do the first episode of Uncomfortable Conversations, that was pretty outrageous. Because I was an athlete who sat in an all-white room and started talking about race. And next thing you know, McConaughey's calling me. McConaughey calls me on no notice. And it's like, hey, Acho, McConaughey speaking. I'd love to record an episode with you. I'm like, cool, give me like four or five days. He's like, let's do it tomorrow. McConaughey wants to do it tomorrow. We do it tomorrow. Like that to me is wild. Um, the Bachelor was just like difficult and right, wild. Right, right. What was more surprising? Oh, wow. That's a question. Sheesh. The Bachelor, I think, in totality, Uncomfortable Conversations was more surprising because I had no idea that after the first Uncomfortable Conversation that, you know, the phone would blow up. McConaughey would call. Jennifer Aniston would DM. Reese Witherspoon would DM. Oprah would call. Like, I had no idea. Oprah. Yeah, Oprah's a legend. And a friend. legend. Um, Had no idea. After all that stuff happened, now nothing surprises me. Right, you know, like mm, I get a right. call from Judah Smith. It's like, how <laughs> you know, it's not surprising. Are ridiculous <laughs> and need to stop. But Judah's gonna walk away with a really big smile today because you just put him in the same well, category as Oprah. Face, so. yeah, I don't think I'm walking away with it. In all honesty, this is what I love about life and just kind of how it all comes full circle and how like the circles aren't that big though they seem like it. So it's just life That's, has been fun. It's so true. This is where I want to go today. And that is some really important conversations and they are inherently uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So what I would love to do completely, and and I just want you to know, this is completely unprepared. We are putting this incredible sage of a man on the spot. Um, Can we talk about the nuances, the tools, the forethought into having an uncomfortable conversation. There's a number of different kinds of uncomfortable conversations we need to have. I think about our marriage, 22 years. There is perpetually some sort of conversation we need to have that can be challenging and difficult. And then, of course, the circle begins to grow to all kinds of uncomfortable conversations, not the least of which is a conversation about background, culture, ethnicity, history of this country, and many others. I feel like uncomfortable conversations are becoming a lost art the more isolated the world gets, the more we sit in our echo chambers, the more we just gather our group of friends that we're actually don't have to have uncomfortable conversations anymore. We just sit around talking with people who agree with us. And so we don't have to have disagreeable, awkward conversations. But what I love about what you've done in this topic is I think that's what needs to heal the world. And I have to wonder if that's why 
your conversations resonated with so many people. It's because you're willing to have them. But how do we equip people to know how to have uncomfortable conversations? So I I instantly think of three words, three action items. Tim Keller, he wrote The Meaning of Marriage. And in, why have I read The Meaning of Marriage and I'm not married? (laughs) (laughs) It's called preparation. Exactly. Noah did not wait till it started raining to build the ark. Wow. That is a preacher's kid (laughs) joke right there. I don't think. I don't think. Um, In The Meaning of Marriage, there are three things that are spoken up. You have to speak the truth with grace and with love. So the foundation of an uncomfortable conversation is those three pillars, truth, grace, love. If you only speak with truth, then it can be too harsh that while it was honest, it cuts. If someone were to be like, Acho, I hate your outfit. Okay, you might have been honest, but you could have like been a little more gracious. But if you only use grace... It's so superfluous. It's like a meaningful nothing. Mm. It's just like a cloud. It's just kind of like there. Yep. But you always have to use love because no one cares what you know until they know that you care. I fervently believe that yeah. in anything in I life. So those are my three pillars. Truth, grace, love. I think that's the entryway for any meaningful dialogue. Then it's a matter of, Can you step outside yourself in your shoes and ask yourself, okay, let me try to see this from their perspective. Can I ask you a question on the first three pillars Mm -hmm. first before you move in? Because I feel like so many of the uncomfortable conversations are deciding or defining what truth is. Mm. So how do you know if you're bringing truth into the conversation, if you're bringing your opinion into the conversation? That's really good. So I always believe there is... My truth, there is your truth, and there is the truth. Mm. Typically. Um, That's typically how it works. Now, depending on the conversation, you have to figure out what are your experiences in life so you can understand how close is your truth to the truth. All my conversations, most of them prior to talking to Little Wayne about mental health, were predicated upon a race. I, a black man in black skin, grew up Nigerian cultured. So I grew up listening to Nigerian music, eating Nigerian food, et cetera. I'll tell you all why that's important here in a second. However, I went to the number one private school in Dallas, Texas, from grades five through 12, St. Mark's School of Texas, all boys school. We wore uniform. So I didn't just go to school with white people. I went to school with rich white people. And there's a difference. <laughs> rich white men. Yes. <laughs> or boys. Yes. There's a difference between like white people and like rich, rich white people. For example, um, the owner of the Kansas City Chiefs graduated from St. Mark's. His father built the football field I was at in high school. Ross Perot, the last person who ran for the Green Party, his sons and great-grandsons graduated from St. Mark's. Mark Cuban, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, his, I believe, son goes to St. Mark's. Like, I went to school with like wealth. That being said, I have the vantage point as a man in 6'2", 240-pound black skin who lived amongst white people, but rich white people, but also lived amongst black people because I went to church in the hood. Tony Evans Church, Oak Cliff. All the while, I am Nigerian. Why does it matter? There's a difference between color and culture. Mm -hmm. I so desperately wish people hear that. Yeah. There's a difference between color and culture. You can be black by skin color, but not necessarily subscribe to what America would label as quote unquote black culture. You can be white by skin color, but depending upon your upbringings, you might be a little more cultured than some. So my canvas was blank because I grew up Nigerian cultured. 
So what was painted on my canvas was both black culture, Nigerian culture, but also the understanding of how white people, particularly the wealthy white people, navigate. Mm. And rich white people, rich white men run this country. They founded this country. So thankfully, I didn't have too many blind spots as it pertained to race because this is what people don't understand. Did y'all take foreign languages growing up? Spanish, Japanese? Tried, yes. But you took it in class. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. You were there. You were present. Here, Judah, here. here. <laughs> Judah was talking in English the whole Spanish class, but he was there. Here's the only reason I ask, and, and for those that are listening will remember, your Spanish teacher would tell you, if you want to be fluent in a language, you have to immerse yourself in the culture. Mm. You can listen to Spanish music. You ain't going to be fluent in Spanish. You can have a Spanish-speaking friend. You ain't going to be fluent in Spanish. But once you immerse yourself in the culture, it will help your fluency. I was immersed in white culture. Mm. Mm. But I was immersed also in black culture, all the while being Nigerian and immersed in Nigerian culture, going to Nigeria every year, going to church in the hood, playing sports, and going to predominantly white school. So because I'm immersed in these cultures, I understood fluency. So to know the truth, you have to understand, do you have blind spots? Where are your blind spots? And what can you do about fixing those blind spots? Because that will help tell you the truth. Analogy of it all, pastor's kid. Um, If you're driving and you understand you had a blind spot, you can look and check your left mirror. You can check your right mirror. But if you know you have a blind spot, you know you're not seeing the full picture. Wow. So you probably want to turn your head around if you can or have somebody check for you who can turn around because then you realize, oh, there's something I'm not seeing. And we don't do enough of that in society. Mm. We don't realize we have blind spots. And if we do, we don't compensate for it. Mm. What do you think is the most effective way to discover our blind spots? Ooh, good question. See, here's the, the problem with that question. And it's not a problem with the question. The problem lies in the answer. If you have a blind spot, you can't ask someone who also has the same blind mm-hmm. spot what the blind spot is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what we do in society. Exactly what we Russ, do. It's wild to me because you can't have a whole bunch of men in a room trying to make a decision that's best for women. You can't have a whole bunch of women in a room trying to make a decision that's best for men. You can't have a whole bunch of white people in a room trying to make a decision that's best for the Latinx community or the Asian community or the black community. Yep. So the best way to discover your blind spots is to ask someone who's not blind in that area. I always say, like, if you want to know about pain in childbirth, sure, I could read a book. Someone might tell me something. I could ask a man who's been in a delivery room. But it's probably best you not only ask a woman, but a woman who's given birth. You could even ask a man OBGYN and he would not be able to tell you. And he would not be able to tell you the same thing. Ultimately, what it comes down to is exposing yourself to different people, different mindsets, different cultures, different backgrounds. Mm. I said it before when I was talking to a group of police officers, proximity breeds care and distance breeds fear. And the problem is- Can you say that one more time? (laughs) Because it's so good and so true. Proximity breeds care and distance breeds fear. And it's true. And the problem is Mm. we're too distant from one another in society. But also, what did society condition you to believe about X, Y, or Z? So much of our life is about conditioning. What are we conditioned Mm. to believe about pastors? What are we conditioned to believe about pastors? Kids so often I hear, oh, you're a PK. What does that even mean? What does that even mean? Exactly. I I didn't know what PK meant. But we're conditioned to believe things about people, about cultures, about groups. Um, So, yeah, I think that's the full synopsis of like, identifying blind spot, Mm. man. You got to expose yourself to different thoughts and trains of life. Mm. So there's my Mm. truth, your truth, the truth. Mm -hmm. And so much of that is dictated by 
blind spots and our personal experiences. Correct. Where do we even begin to try to come to the truth? It has to start one conversationally, but two empathy. Some of my biggest um, opposers when I started in comfortable conversations was the Christian community. Shocking. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I'll say. The the crazy (laughs) thing was, and it's because I would hear stuff like this. Emmanuel, it's not about race. It's about grace. It's not about skin. It's about sin. Get out of here. Cliches that just... And I was like, you all have to understand, sin is playing itself out through skin, so both can be true, Mm. right? Like, we need more grace based upon things that have been playing themselves over the course of years through race, so both can be true. I heard this once, and and, and not to get too bible when we think about the story of like uh, Moses and Pharaoh, we always look at ourselves as the Israelites and look at ourselves as Moses. But what if we're Pharaoh? Mm. And I challenge everybody who's listening, at some point in time, you have been Pharaoh. At some point in yeah. time, you have held someone, something, or, or some ideology captive. I think when it comes down to the truth is you have to understand how is someone else feeling and why are they feeling that way? And have I been Pharaoh or am Mm. I being Pharaoh in this moment? Because a lot of time we'll use doctrine to like perpetuate something or we'll use doctrine to ignore something. Mm. I almost hear you saying an uncomfortable conversation has to start with an uncomfortable conversation with yourself, which is, have I ever been Pharaoh? Mm-hmm. Where are my blind spots? Am I willing to see them? But if we can't have that with ourselves, how can we ever have it with a fellow human? And I believe it's like, you know what they, well, know what they say. I guess the Bible says it. I promise <laughs> you I'm not trying to be preachy. I don't even like speaking Christianese. But he, he who knows what is right and doesn't do it, this is sin. It's once you know it's not right, right? That's at the point in which it becomes sin. Once you realize you have been Pharaoh, then just change. Yeah. Like, don't condemn yourself. I love Bob Goff. His book, Love Does. Yep. And, I, and I have come up with the kind of phrase, like, guilt doesn't cause someone to change. Love does. That's right. Yeah. So don't feel guilty. It's just change your course of action and, and proceed forward. I'm watching you right now, and it, it is a spectacle. You're a verbal spectacle. And it's amazing the gift that God's given you and the wisdom that, that you have. What I'm witnessing in you, which has happened in, we had a, a wonderful brunch. I'll call it a brunch, which is where <laughs> breakfast and lunch collide. It's, it's when you have a late breakfast. Um, we had a wonderful brunch. But you were on time. Um, was I on time? He was on time. Thank that you for saying time. that publicly. He was on time. Thank you. Oh, but it kind of hurts my heart. Okay, because, okay right, I'll young stop. Lady. <laughs> there's your enough. truth, there's my truth, and, and then there's, there's the truth. truth. <laughs> <laughs> that is the truth right there. Um, and that's the whole truth, nothing but the truth. I want to talk about this idea of uncomfortable conversations has so much to do with pain, too, because you're talking about blind spots. And the moment you bring up blind spots, I think we start talking about pain aversion because uncomfortability, by definition, is one of the most acute pains. And we don't want it. And we don't want to feel ignorant. We don't want to feel dumb. And if I could speak on behalf of white people, especially, they, the reason it's, it's about sin, not skin. By the way, God made skin. 
So it's clearly about skin, mm-hmm. <laughs> just for the record. But it's like, oh, don't, don't make me feel uncomfortable because that's painful. And I don't yeah. want to feel pain. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you face pain? Well, I was thinking about this last week. You know the quote, knowledge is power. Mm. I finally realized, I don't think I agree with that. Mm. Knowledge is potential. The application of knowledge is power. Wow. Wow. Just because you know something isn't powerful, can you apply what it is that you know? And so when I think about learning or learning about myself, that pain moment, I want to be able to know it so I can apply it because that's what yields power. One of my biggest learning moments was maybe three months ago, I was doing a podcast and I was talking to the head of disabilities for a Fortune 500 company. I'm hosting the podcast, so like you all, I have to read her bio. Now, she is deaf. But as reading her bio, you know me, I'm empathetic, Emmanuel Acho, try to be kind. So I don't want to call her uh, disabled, right? To me, that seems rude. So I'm like, you know, I'll just say like hearing different. Yeah, that sounds good. I'll go hearing different or I'll go like hearing disadvantage. Yeah, let's use disadvantage. Yeah, Acho, that sounds great. So, you know, we're now joined by so-and-so who's, you know, been hearing different for the last 20 years and, you know, a little bit disadvantaged hearing. So thank you so much for joining me. How are you? And she can read lips and communicate accordingly. So as she speaks, she said, it made me cringe when you said different and disadvantaged. She said, because I'm disabled, but people only listen to the dis and not the able. People only listen to the dis and not the ability about my disability. At that point in time, I was like, here I am trying to do what I can do to serve this other person, not realizing I wasn't serving them how they best wanted to be served. And in that moment, it took, it it stung me a little bit because I was like, man, I wasn't right. She corrected me. Mm -hmm. I was wrong. Like I made her cringe. That was a real part that got like me. I I speak for a living. I try to be like a great orator (laughs) and I made you cringe. But in that moment, I realized something. And I was like, now I can be better at serving this other individual for it. Um, So that's kind of how I've learned to navigate that aspect of pain. Mm. I am, however, very pain averse. It's another conversation, right? Like I try to run from emotional pain, like things that make me like sad or like before uncomfortable conversations. I was a dude who played in the NFL, but was cut five times before the age of 25. So like my life was not always glamorous. And I mourn that Emmanuel. So like that pain I, I, I hide from. Mm-hmm. Um, but this pain I seek. Yeah. And is it because you feel like you see a purpose in this pain? Whereas the pain of being cut felt Oof. purposeless? Yeah, see, this pain is, it's beneficial. Like this pain is for growth. Yeah. This pain yielded and will project me to help somebody else. I felt like the pain of my NFL career, the pain of my professional football career, it just hurt. But if I knew then (laughs) what I know now, it wouldn't have hurt. When I got cut, uh, uh, my coach said, Acho, I wish I could buy stock in your future. I'm confused as hell. I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, you just cut me. Like, you just cut me for maybe the fourth out of five times coming. What do you mean you wish you could buy stock in my future? Then a year ago, after uncomfortable conversations, he texted me and he said, the stock price is too high now. And it just hit me. Because I was like, you saw in me what I didn't see in myself. So when I think about those pain moments, that pain I run from, this pain I run to, but I think it's because they yield different things or because I've matured. 
And I understand that like some pain is necessary for growth. Mm. Well, that's a tweet. Right. I'm going to tweet Some, that later. Not all. Not all. <laughs> but it just makes me wonder your coach's perspective. And again, not to get too preachy. I'm not a pastor's kid, so I guess I can get preachy. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes me wonder if God always sees the purpose in our pain. And if he does so often. And just because we can't see it. I don't know. Maybe not all pain does have purpose. But that he always sees how he's going to redeem it. How he's going to work mm-hmm. it out. And we're still here trying to avoid pain, especially pain that we can't see the purpose in. Mm-hmm. And maybe one of the most dangerous things in the human experience is when you can't feel pain anymore. That's mm-hmm. probably when you're in the most danger, right? I mean, that is Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. You can't even feel that your body is shutting down and you feel numb. You can't feel cold anymore. Mm-hmm. You can't feel the pain. You can't feel it's, you know, life is not going to be much longer when you stop feeling pain. So by definition, feeling pain means that you're alive. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Boy, how busy I am not wanting to feel pain. I'll put something on the table because I want to hear your approach to it. And I'm going to be as candid as possible, whether or not this makes the cut in the the (laughs) podcast. I personally have experienced some pain as a pastor that I never saw coming. And that was in these uh, most important couple of years in human history, modern human history, particularly the United States of America with so much uh, social unrest, and rightfully so. I felt like I had been prepared for days like these as a white preacher to stand for what I knew was right. In doing that, I made enemies on, I hate using the word sides, Mm -hmm. but on both sides of our social construct and these issues. And I lost white friends, and I lost black friends. And two years later, the pain is trying to inform me, even as I'm sitting here, Mm -hmm. it tries to inform me that maybe you shouldn't be as confident. Maybe you shouldn't be as comfortable. Be careful. What would you say to guys and gals who are like, I'm kind of unsure not about what I believe, but how I go about it now because of the pain that has happened. That is me putting like where I literally sit right now. Let's talk about an uncomfortable conversation (laughs) right here. Oh, man. Um, I, I think... A lot of us lost a lot of friends. Mm. Now, you start to ask yourself, were they truly friends? That's what I've had to do. Mm. Um, Because if you aren't a friend with all of me, then were you actually a friend of me? Mm -hmm. My, My black friend got into a conversation with a white person the other day. And she would have called her a friend, maybe still would. And over the course of this conversation, the white person was like, well, let's just agree that we're going to disagree on this race thing. Like, I just, I think that black people are overplaying so much of what's going on in society. And my black friend was like, we can disagree on a lot of things, but we can't disagree on prejudice and racism and brutality. Like, we can disagree on like pizza toppings, Hmm. but you, but you can't call me a friend if you can't acknowledge my pain. So I'd preface with that. I think the second place I would go is 
is making sure that you are and we are navigating from a place of knowledge. Because mm. as long as you have knowledge, to some extent, you have freedom. The best analogy I give, when I was growing up, I used to, whenever I would fly on a plane, before like Wi-Fi was common on planes, I would play Minesweeper. Y'all know Minesweeper, you go past yep, paint, yep. under solid tear, hearts, Minesweeper. Here's the problem. I never knew how to play Minesweeper. So I would just click around and click around and click around until something blew up. There's actually a way to play Minesweeper. <laughs> thinking that's how you played the game. Straight up and down. Thinking it was purely a game of luck and a game of chance. Not realizing there's actually rules to playing it. Why am I bringing this up? I feel like that's how so many people navigate with race. So many mm. people navigate with uncomfortable topics. They don't realize like there are certain potential rules of engagement. And instead, they just emotionally click around and click around until someone else's emotions blow up. And that is how I would advise, like, navigate from a place of knowledge. You still might step on a mine, but at least you know how to avoid them. It's not to say you're not going to step on one eventually, but at least now you understand, oh, there's a strategy here. There's a, a better way to conduct myself here. And you can learn from stepping on that mine. As opposed to just stepping on them, wondering why you did, how you did, and continually doing it. And then so many people say, well, it's just their fault. It's their fault. It's their fault. That can't be me. They're just closed-minded or stubborn, et cetera. So I think, man, it's just operating from a place of knowledge. Mm. Mm. Other than growing up in three different cultures that you did, which is an incredible gift of knowledge, and the knowledge you don't have to learn sometimes is the best because mm. we don't know that we had to learn it. But where do you go for knowledge, specifically around race and race conversations? Because it feels like you try to find truth, all we get is opinions and the opinions all just contradict each other. That's good. Um, I, I, I love personal experience because to me, that's not opinion. Yeah. To me, that's laced in fact. After George Floyd was murdered, I was mad, righteously angry. You're allowed to be righteously angry <laughs> in the Bible. I wasn't mad. I was righteously angry. That's right. Um, so I was, I was truly upset and I had to talk to white people. I had to, because I was like, okay, how y'all feel? Because I know how I feel as a black man, but like y'all still on Instagram and the y'all is like my white friend. So I can't speak for all, but like my white friends on Instagram posting and posting like nothing happened. So I went over to my white friend's house, um, two couples, they were next door neighbors and they love the Lord. Just the greatest of people. I walked one of their uh, moms down the aisle at their wedding. Mm. I mean like friends, wow. friends. Wow. And I go to their house and we're sitting down having dinner. This is the day I believe George Floyd was murdered because I needed to pick your brain. How are y'all seeing life? How are y'all seeing this tragedy? Let me tell you how I'm seeing it. And this is why Uncomfortable Conversation started True Story. They said, Emmanuel, what's the solution? And I said, well, white people need to be exposed to black people more frequently. Yeah. Otherwise, they'll treat every black person based upon what they see on TV. Mm. And my white friend was like, well... How can we expose, you know, our, our mindsets and whatnot to black people? I said, well, y'all go to church. Like, you can go to black churches, et cetera. This is what he said. This is when I knew uncomfortable conversations had to start. He said, we thought black church was your thing. And I was like, oh. There we go. So you all don't even get the jurisdictions or lack thereof of cultural spaces. Mm. Black church only started because black people weren't allowed to go to white churches and they had to sit in the second row of white churches, uh, if I'm not mistaken, starting in Philadelphia. Oh, so you didn't think like you were allowed to come to a church that was predominantly black. The, the letter that was written 
to the first black man who wanted to be a Methodist bishop who ended up starting the AME, mm-hmm. the word for word letter makes you cry. It, but it, if you don't know it, that. If you don't know. So uh, I say that to say, at that point in time, I realized even the most God-fearing, loving of people, white friend of mine, didn't realize that like you could come to this church. This is church we talking about. Church. In 2020, it's church. And you think that you can't go to this church. So I say to him, you thought black church was my thing. I said, I said, bro, I, I go to white church all the time because we go to the same church when I don't go to the Southern church. He said, you don't go to white church. You just go to church. I said, it's just church to you. It's just church to you. I said, I walk into this auditorium of 3,000 people and might see seven black people. Maybe. Maybe. I said, it's just church to you. But to me, it's white church. And so that's when I said, okay, we got disconnects here in society, Mm -hmm. even amongst people that are Mm well-intended. We have disconnects. Let's start trying to remedy some of these disconnects. Do you feel like it's working? Good question. It's a really good question. You have to say yes. And the reason you have to say yes is because like, (laughs) even if you just change one mind, one heart, one conversation, then that's something. Again, I always say equality of any sort isn't a finish line we cross. Think track and field, you cross the finish line. Ta-da, I did it. The game of football, you cross the end zone. Ta-da, I did it. Basketball, you get a ball in the hoop, it's done. Golf, you get the golf ball in the hole, it's done. Equality isn't a line you cross, it's a road you travel. Truly. It's a direction you take. That's it. That's it. It's just a direction that you take. And like the the person who was in the ocean and looks back and see how far they've drifted from shore, we have to look back and see how far we've drifted from inequality. So, no, I mean, I don't think there's ever like a finish line, but I think we have to choose to travel. things that moves me every time I uh, watch you or listen to you or around you is how personable and very specific you are making the direction you're taking. Jesus has this concept in, in the social constructs, and that is love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And I think uncomfortable conversations with a black man, so much of it has moved me. But whether people are aware of it or not, a lot of your secret sauce is is it's really like, can you love the person in front of you? Can you go out of your way to put new kinds of people in front of you and love them? Because, and again, now we're getting real preachy, put it to a couple of pastors, kids getting together. But when Jesus was asked, when he said, love your neighbor, a follow-up question was asked, well, who is my neighbor? I mean, who is my neighbor? So what does he do? He tells arguably the most racially, ethnically charged parable he ever tells. He literally makes a Samaritan the star of his parable. And a Samaritan to the Jews was by definition a half-breed, and they weren't even to look at them in the eye. And Jesus says to his predominantly, if not exclusively, Jewish audience, 
He says, let me tell you who your neighbor is. And he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. And the Samaritan is the ultimate Zenith example of loving your neighbor. And so I cannot help but sit here and feel chills in my body and a depth in my soul that what we're talking about is one of the most important constructs that Jesus ever introduced. And that is, can you love your neighbor? And that to me is not only doable, but I think there's a God in all of this who wants to enable us to do that. I'm listening to what you're saying, and, mm. I, and I appreciate the the example with the Samaritan. Okay. But if you were living in the Jim Crow South in the 50s and 40s, you can love your neighbor, and that neighbor was only people who look like you. You could mm. love people who, well in, who were in front of you, well said. and they were only people who look like you. Or even in the world we live in now, you can stick in your neighborhood, your cul-de-sac, mm-hmm. your school, your workplace, and you still end up with people who are similar to you and same as you. Can you clarify that so that we don't think, oh, okay, great. Now I have license to just love my neighbor mm-hmm. and just go and be around the people who look like me, think like me, act like me. And I can feel like I'm following in the footsteps of Jesus by loving my right, neighbor. Right, which is one of the easiest things to do in the social experiment. It's just like, oh, you look like me, you act like you, you talk to me. I can love you. This is amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm a winner. I'm you know, so, I'm so jackpot. loving. Yeah, I'm so I'm loving. I'm so good at uncomfortable I'm conversations. so good <laughs> at uncomfortable conversations. Um, well, it really gets back to Jesus said, we, we must go through Samaria. He takes these 12 Jewish young men, only one probably over 18, and says, we're going to travel through Samaria. We are going to be intentional about befriending, watching, learning, and listening. So Jesus implicit within his parable and his teachings was this concept. And I guess that's my point. He said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus basically said through his parable, it's the person who's nothing like you that you hate. That's your neighbor. And and the Jewish audience is like, no, they're not. We don't live by Samaritans. We avoid them. And yet Jesus seemed to say, that is your neighbor. And yet we live in a culture where we have berated, belittled, and ignored our fellow man and our neighbor. I love, one, the clarification, but I also love the question. I think the problem in our society is we have watered down the definition of love. Mm. Because I can say I love Chipotle and I love Judah Smith, but how can I use that same word of love to describe food and another human being? Yeah. So we've watered down the definition of love. I believe the other thing is based upon so many things, reality, TV, and our society, we just think of love as some sort of atmospheric uh, pressure, like oxygen. You can't really touch it. But mm-hmm. love you can feel because love is an action. Love, it serves, it sacrifices, it goes above and beyond, it dies for. Love moves, love marches, love peacefully protests, love stands in agreement, love sits in agreement, love kneels in agreement. Love, it does. Like Bob Goff said, it does. Mm. So, so many people just want to say, oh, well, I love you, but what are you doing? If you love, then what are you doing? I should be able to feel your love, Mm. touch your love, speak to your love, speak with your love. Don't just tell me you love me. Show me. Your actions speak so loud, I can't hear what you're telling me. So when it comes down to loving your neighbor, and whether it's your literal neighbor or your proverbial neighbor, show me your love. Because right now, we live in a society of a bunch of lazy lovers, if you will. A bunch of people who love by language alone. I love you, but show me. 
Because you can't say you love me and not care for what I care for. Like I, one of my greatest, well, I guess it's a song, Hosanna Hill song, Break My Heart for What Breaks Yours. Yeah. That's a great bar. lyric. <laughs> and it's not even a, a God break my, it's a God break my heart for what breaks Judas. Mm. You feel me? That's like, love. That's, so that's love. That's right. That's what it looks like. How we do it, I got to be close enough to you to love you. I got to know what breaks your heart. Because if I don't know what breaks your heart, then how can my heart break for what your heart breaks for? As a black man, I might know what breaks another black man's heart. But do I know mm-hmm. what breaks an Asian woman's heart? Do I know what breaks a, a white woman's heart? Do I know what breaks a white man? Like, we got to be close enough to understand the heartbreak of others. That to me is, is love and action. Compassion fatigue. Feeling like we need to love the world. Feeling like we need to be the savior of the world. How do we hold those truths at the same time? Mm. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, that's so tough because, <laughs> because it's so real. Where right? I can't do everything. Right. Like uh, my DMs are always sort of Emmanuel, speak on this. Mm. Emmanuel, speak mm. on that. Mm-hmm. Right. Emmanuel, why haven't you spoke about this yet? I'm like, bro, who y'all think I am? I'm supposed to be the feet of Jesus, not Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, who am I? Um, I? I believe that your first responsibility should be to take care of your own home. Mm. I think the question is then what's your own home? The two places I tend to most is the racial divide and Nigeria. Mm. I go to Nigeria every summer on medical mission trips prior to COVID hitting. The last time we went, we built a hospital. Mm. I tend to that home and I tend to the racial divide in America. Those are the two places where I'm like, I'm going to leave my mark in those two places. And then as I have more bandwidth, I use it. Who else needs me? Okay, Asian American community, y'all getting hate right now? Okay, let me, let me, let me use my voice. Let me speak up. Let me act. I mean, you're right. Uh, it, it's, ex- it's exhausting. But I say it's a worthy exhaustion. That's right. Mm. But it is exhausting. We like to say, group of my friends, like we're not in the show business, but we are in people business. And when you're in the people business, by nature, people are complex Mm. and layered and difficult, just like each and every one of us. I think watching you again today, Emmanuel, I always want to say your name as Emmanuel, God with us. Um, (laughs) You're a listener too. And I admire it deeply. Um, The smartest people I've come across, they have one common theme, and it's that they listen. They're also pretty curious, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I guess we're trying to give some takeaways as well as we always do. And it's like, man, can you be a listener? Can you go places you've never listened in and listen there? I mean, no disrespect to white people, but let me speak to my own people. We, by definition, historically in this country, we go places we've never been and we talk more than anyone there. That's what we do. What if we change that? What if we went to places we've never been and listened more than anyone else? I I wonder if there's a depth and a beauty and really a majesty within life that we are limiting ourselves from. And I'm hungry for that. Like I'm desirous of that. I want to listen more. I want to learn more that we're tempered 
comes to mind. You know, it's strength under control, meekness. Mm-hmm. And you have that decorum. You have that demeanor. And I know it's been developed, but it's also God-given. And I think you're a model in that regard to so many people. And I want to thank you for that because I think it inspires me. It inspires my wife. I think about my boys, you know, my daughter. That That's the kind of people we want to be. And, and maybe, just maybe, someday that will be synonymous with somebody who loves Jesus. Mm -hmm. That people will say, well, those Jesus people, man, they listen. They look you in the eye. They ask questions. They want to know your pain. Those people, you got to get around those Jesus people. And you'll never know what it means to me to, to know someone like you who's decided to say, this is what following Jesus looks like to me. It looks like putting myself in painful scenarios intentionally to listen, learn, grow, and then share my journey and my experience with exuberance and passion. Yeah, I'll just say you have always done such an incredible job of speaking the truth with grace and in love. And it it's made a difference in my life and our children's life, your conversations that we've listened to. So thank you for your time here with us and for everything that you're doing. And if you ever need any... Um, any strength, let us know. We got your back. Amen. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I just now realized between the green and red y'all are wearing, it looks like Christmas. Really into Christmas, man. Christmas is a really big time of year for us. Jesus' birth and all. Oh, but you know, not a big deal. Um, No, in all seriousness, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for y'all. I'm grateful for this conversation. I'm grateful just for people who are willing to kind of step out on faith, on edge, make themselves vulnerable, have this conversation, be in this space. It's not easy to get vulnerable, but I think everybody can grow from their own vulnerability, Mm -hmm. um, which we all did just now. So obviously I consider y'all brothers and sisters and just swaggy individuals. And we can do this 17 more times, right? This has been a presentation of OBB Sound, SB Projects, and Cadence 13. Executive produced by Chelsea Smith, Judah Smith, Michael D. Ratner, Scott Ratner, Elias Tanner, Scooter Braun, Scott Manson, James Shin, and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Grace Delia. Co-produced by Kyle Venuya of SB Projects. Produced by Lauren Lagrasso and Serena Reagan of Cadence 13. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Adam Masias. Original composition by Colin Gilliard. Production support from Rachel Cruz. OBB Sound is an OBB media company. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company.